second uh, study in our series and uh, as Brother David has indicated, the title is Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And we would have picked up those words from John chapter 3. However, as we drew our first study to a close, we said we would start off this second one by asking a question. First of all, how many can even remember what the question was? (laughs) It was back in John chapter 1, and it was verse 27. Here is John telling the Jewish rulers, I am not the Messiah, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the prophet like unto Moses, I'm not even Elijah. I'm not the one who has come to be the Redeemer of Israel. There's a little bit of a clue there. He then said, Whose shoes latch it, I am not worthy to unloose. What did he mean by that? Good thought. If it was in Matthew, Mark or Luke, that's probably what he would have meant. Although Luke does make a mention of it. But what we're going to find is that John always has a deeper significance in something he says. Can you think of anything back in the Old Testament that was associated with unloosing the latchet of somebody's shoe? Taking your shoe off? Loosing your shoe? The book of Ruth. What actually happened in the book of Ruth? Boaz said that he wanted to act the part of the Redeemer. You know, under the law of Moses, if a man died and he had no children, uh, then his next of kin was to take the wife and to raise up children to the dead brother. Right? If, however, that next of kin was not prepared to do it, but that there was somebody else who was prepared to do that work, then there was an enactment which was, re- uh, which was uh, recorded, uh, don't turn back to it, but I'll just give you the reference, uh, in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verses 7 to 10, where they took the shoe off the person from whom this right of redemption was taken away. You see, this person was called the Redeemer. In the book of Ruth, there was an unnamed person who had the right of redeeming Ruth. But he said, I can't do it. So Boaz said, all right, I'll do it. So what did he do? He took off his shoe. He unloosed the latch of his shoe and he gave it to this other person. So to take the right of redeemer from one person to another, the shoe was unloosed and according to Deuteronomy, he also spat in his face. Uh, We don't read of that in the book of Ruth. But it came to be called in Deuteronomy 25 the house of him who has his shoe loosed. Now what is John the Baptist saying? He says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not like the one under Moses. I'm not even Elijah. There's one coming after me who is going to be superior to me. He it is who's going to be your redeemer. I am not worthy to unloose the latchet of his shoe. Now this is the sort of thing that John's going to be doing, seeing a deeper significance. So I'll just give you the references. Uh, The references would be, if you want them for later on, that in, uh, uh, well a cross-reference in the Gospel, for example, in Luke chapter 3 and at verse 16, uh, the statement is repeated again and it's a quotation from Deuteronomy 25 verses 7 to 10 and the illustration is found in the book of Ruth, chapter 4 and verse 7. Okay, I don't want to make a big thing of that, but that's just a very interesting little point on the way past. Well, the Lord then is introduced to us and his ministry uh, commences as he he meets certain people. Uh, He meets Andrew and he meets Peter and, uh, and others. But this man, Nathaniel, is an interesting person. And towards the end of chapter 1, we have an incident involving the Lord and Nathaniel. Now, the thing we're going to watch for from here to the end of our studies, though somewhat excluding John 17, but certainly in this study, in a very definite way, 
and tonight and tomorrow morning, we're going to have conversations. And the conversation will always be between the Lord and somebody else. And it can be anybody from a Jewish ruler to a Samaritan woman to a multitude or whatever. And you're going to find, and here's the answer to it, the Lord is speaking the language of the Spirit. He's speaking absolute language. Here's a person over here asking a question. The Lord looks through that question and says, look, if I answered your question in accordance with the way you've asked it, what good would it do you? It's a bit like us saying, was there a pre-Adamic creation? And if someone was able to give us the answer, we'd say, oh, thanks very much and go away. What good would it have done us? And most of the questions that he got asked were curiosity ones. So he goes right through the question and answers what was the real problem they had behind their question. And most often they didn't know their problem because their problem was, and here comes the punchline, their problem was they were thinking like the flesh, not like the spirit. The Lord's going to use the language of the spirit. They're going to be talking the language of the flesh. It's as though there's two different levels and you and I will initially find ourselves down on this level and John is going to take us straight up there. Not in easy steps, he's going to take us straight up. And probably the biggest test is going to come uh, in some words in John 3 when we get there shortly during this talk. That will really test us. But that's the reason why I want to read these words of Nathaniel because I'm going to suggest these words to Nathaniel have a direct bearing on this matter that will come up in John chapter 3. Nathaniel. Verse 45 of John chapter 1. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a very cosmopolitan city. It was the crossroads of a lot of trade routes. It was known as Galilee of the Gentiles, because although it was in Israel, it was a, it was a, a cosmopolitan city, very low class, and like cosmopolitan, a lot of... Um, murky sort of dealings I guess went on there can anything good come out of Nazareth we read then in uh, verse 46 and Nathanael saith unto him can there any good thing come out of Nazareth Philip says come and see Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile an Israelite Indeed, in whom was no guile. Who was the first Israelite? Jacob was the first Israelite. He was the one whose name was changed to Israel. Would you say that Jacob was a man that didn't have any guile? Hardly. He probably got better as he went on. Well, he did. But you couldn't exactly say that Jacob was guileless. Now he says, here's an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile little bit of a clue. Verse 48, Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Sounds a simple enough question, simple enough to answer. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? In other words, this must be a miracle man. And let me just anticipate something. This is going to be later on one of the biggest problems the Lord has. He can handle the Jews, he can handle the Pharisees, but the most difficult thing he had was people following him for the wrong reason. You're not following me because you perceived the sign, you're following me because I filled your stomachs with bread. What were they in it for? Human salvation, not God manifestation. Now Nathaniel's not quite that bad, but the Lord says, just because I said I saw you under the fig tree, which obviously was some sort of miraculous thing, you believe. Now listen to this, verse 51. Now latter part of verse 50. Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. 
where does that take us back to in the Old Testament of something connecting heaven and earth and angels of God ascending and descending in the life of which man? The life of Jacob. So we're starting to get some connections here. An Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Now, you're going to see something greater than all these things. You're going to see a vision of heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon who? The Son of Man. So that was like that staircase or that ladder. So the Lord is telling us, if you understand the significance of Jacob's dream, what Jacob saw was something which was prophetic of me. I'm the Son of Man. And those ministering spirits that God sends forth on behalf of those who are to be the heirs of salvation are able to minister because of what God has done in me. I am that ladder. Or staircase if you like. We'll stick with the word ladder for the moment. You know, a ladder is a most uh, unique implement, utensil, uh, piece of uh, equipment, um, whatever else you like to call a ladder. Because a ladder can do something a lot of things aren't, can't, can't do. It can be in two places at one and the same time. It's got one end on the ground, and it's got the other end up on the roof, or if it's long enough, up in the heavens. So the ladder of Jacob's dream connected heaven and earth. Now here's the simple equation. Jesus is saying, I am the ladder of Jacob's dream. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that connects heaven and earth. A ladder can be in two places at one and the same time. Could the Lord be on earth and at the same time be in heaven? Well, just reserve that for a moment because this in a moment becomes the climax of what he says to Nathaniel, to whom we're now going to be introduced. And I think with what we've just said, you're going to see the answer to a verse that many Bible commentators would say is the most disputed verse in the Bible and you're hopefully going to say, well, they just don't understand the Gospel of John. So we'll just leave Nathaniel for a moment. You're going to see greater things. You are going to see God manifestation. You are going to see me as the one who brings God to man and the one who takes man back to God. And God can meet human beings in this one because he's a true manifestation of God to man. He's a true representative of man to God. That's the atonement. Leave it there. Okay, so we come now to the latter verses of John chapter 2. And I'm going to read from John chapter 2, verse 23, to about John chapter 3, say verse 5. Now I want you to listen carefully and pick out what is the significant word. The significant word will be determined on the basis of a word which is repeated frequently. It might seem a simple word, but it's repeated very frequently. And then we've got to say, why did John put emphasis on that word? I'll try not to read in a way that gives emphasis to it, so that's going to make the reading a little bit bland. Verse 23. <clears throat> now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. So you see, once again, this is introducing us to the fact of people following him for the same reason. Let me just pick up verse 24 again and read it straight through, leaving out the chapter 3 break, which of course the translators put in, and inserting a but at the beginning of chapter 3 verse 1. Verse 24 of chapter 2. Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. But there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, 
except a man be born of water and of, of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now we could read other verses further down in the chapter which would illustrate the point, but that will do for the moment. Any suggestion what might be the significant word there due to its repetition? Well, I think we got a majority vote. <laughs> and a majority vote said man. You're right. Now, I think you're already getting the clue. If this had been one of the other Gospels, it would have just meant nothing. What do you think it's going to mean here? Let's just read again. Verse 24, Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. He needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man, but there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Why didn't he just say there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus? Starting to, just starting to get the message, are you? Because Nicodemus had a problem. Nicodemus, we read, was the teacher of Israel. Remember reading that in those verses that Brother David read? The teacher of Israel was one of the top three men. And I must get my information correct. There was the high priest in one area. There was the man who was the most learned in the scriptures called the teacher of Israel. And this was Nicodemus on this occasion. And I forget what the third position was. Whether it was the captain of the temple guard, I can't remember. I should check it out. But don't worry. Nicodemus was supposed to be the most learned man in the scriptures. What was his problem? He was a man. Do I just mean that he happened to be a human being of the male gender? Or do you think that John, in quoting the words of the Lord, is saying something more than that? He's saying that the problem with Nicodemus was that despite all his knowledge, he still thought like man. And unless a man is born again and born of spirit, then he'll never get into the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus, with all your knowledge, that little incorruptible seed of the word of God has not started to germinate to develop a new form of thinking in you. But don't get too worried. Nicodemus turned out alright, didn't he? We're going to see that the Lord seems to give him very hard treatment. But who were the two people that came to ask for the body of Jesus? Peter? James? John? No. Nicodemus. So, we read in chapter 3 verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So that's important because Nicodemus is going to be told, Nicodemus, you've got to develop a new type of thinking, the thinking of the Spirit. Now we read in verse 2, the same came to Jesus by night. You know, that always, ever after, got appended to him. Every time Nicodemus got mentioned, he was the one that came to Jesus by night. And just wait a little later on to what Jesus says about those people who love darkness rather than light. Oh, Nicodemus, look, if any of us set out to preach the truth to people and treated them the way that the Lord treated Nicodemus, our, our, our ecclesia would say, listen, that is no way to speak to people about the truth. But the Lord exactly knew how to handle Nicodemus. And what he did was he looked straight through the problem. Nicodemus comes to him with the question in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man, did he know what he was saying? No man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, all he wanted to know was, look, who are you? You've obviously come from God. Listen, are you the, are you the Messiah? And he came to Jesus by night, because in his position it would have looked very bad if he'd have gone up to Jesus in the daytime and asked, so he came to Jesus by night, just tell me and I'll go away and then I'll be satisfied. And the Lord thought, well, if I give him the answer, it's not going to do him any good at all. He'll say, thank you very much, that's all I wanted to know. So what answer does he get? The answer in verse 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again. I want to comment on that word born again in a minute but just for the moment he cannot see the kingdom of God now here's the first example although Nathaniel had a little bit but here's the first classic example Lord uh, are you a teacher come from God because no one can do these miracles unless God has sent him 
Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I'm sorry, I think he must have misunderstood my question. That, that's not what I asked. But the Lord looked right through Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you're still thinking like man. Your curiosity and your status and your position says, I've got to come by night, I've got to find out secretly, and then I'll go back and I'll be able to conduct the rest of my life on the basis that I now know the answer. Instead of which the Lord says, Nicodemus, you've got a problem. And your problem is far greater than the answer to this question. So, as usual, the people follow the Lord's line of reasoning. And he says in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus was thinking according to the flesh. Someone says you've got to be born again and you're talking to an ordinary plain human being who doesn't understand the language of the spirit. Naturally you're thinking, he's saying, got to be born again, but well, do I have to die and how can I go back into mother's womb? You see, he was the teacher of Israel. And the Lord in a minute says, you, the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand the things I'm saying? I've only spoken to you earthly things. What if I started talking to you heavenly things? How would you get on then? And so he does present him with some heavenly thoughts, but we'll get to those in a minute. So see the pattern. Now this is the classic pattern we get in John's Gospel. The Lord is up here, the others and us are down here. And John's going to have to bring us up in one step. That's why I say the way to understand John is you just read and read and read and read it and in the end you say, I've got it. And then someone says, well, can you now explain it to me? And you say, the answer is, you go back and read it. We've got to become accustomed to the language of John. I mean, it's, it's like anything else. Uh, it, it, it's like, uh, well, I suppose it's like learning a foreign language or it's, it, it's like learning a, a computer program or, or the jargon of the age. Uh, you know, what's in our mind we come to understand. This, though, is the language of the spirit. And when we come to understand the spiritual language, the absolute language, then John actually becomes a very easy book because whether it's John 3 or John 4 or John 6, they're just different stories and they're all saying the same thing. Okay, let's, let's deal with Nicodemus. This one in many respects is the most specific and requires the most exposition. The others really fall into place very easily. Jesus answered, verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I've got one chart here which I'm going to put up. And before we look at the actual chart part of it, we've got an important definition at the top, which, once again, the problem is with the English language uh, not with the Bible language. And this often happens, you know, words like uh, justify and righteous are really the same word. The, just, the problem is you can't righteousify somebody, so we've got to go across to justify, but in the Greek the word's the same. Uh, we can believe something, but we can't faith it. We can have faith. So faith and belief are the same word, but it's just the English problem. Now, once again, in the Greek language there is a word uh, Ganeo, or sometimes Genoa, the ending doesn't matter. Uh, it's the first part of it, and this uh, uh, this is the Greek actually G E N N. Now we get words like Genesis, genetics, genealogy, generate, all of those words which have the idea of of beginning. Now this word Ganeo can mean in English two different things. If it's related to a father, then the word should be translated as to beget. It's the father that implants that seed. And of course, in a spiritual sense, it's an incorruptible seed, isn't it? And who is the father? God always reveals himself to us as our father. So what we've got then is a word which means to beget when it's related to a father, but it means to bring forth or to be born when referring to a mother. In other words, this word geneo really refers to the whole process and the Greeks never worried particularly about whether it was the beginning or the end because 
you can't have an end without a beginning and if you have a beginning without an end, well, you've still got nothing. So really, it, it, it can mean either to beget or to bring to the birth. For example, uh, the passage in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, just to illustrate the use of the word, not to in any way necessarily develop the theme in John, but just to show how the translators were forced to do something with it here in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 16. Here's the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel taken back to Abraham and David. <clears throat> Matthew 1 verse 16. And Jacob, a man, yep, Jacob's a man, he begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, now Mary's a woman, of whom was born Jesus. The word begat and the word born are the same word. But because it's a man in the first place and a woman in the second place, the first one is begat and the second one is born. Perhaps as an illustration, let's just turn to the first epistle of John and tell me what you think of this. First epistle of John... The record which we have up there is uh, 1st of John chapter 5 and verse 1. 1st epistle of John chapter 5 verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. I'm surprised the translators were so uh, dense. God is our father. God's not our mother. It should be begotten. And everyone that loveth him, and this time they get it right, that begat, loveth him also uh, that is begotten of him. And we have in the words of verse 18, and we know that whosoever is, once again, born of God, sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. So they've got it all mixed up there. They've got born in one place and begotten in the other, at least in the King James Version, and they've, they've got a muddle. By the way, any of the other translations make that a bit better? You can see what we're saying. God is our Father. He will beget us through that incorruptible seed of the word. Did any of the other translations actually handle it better or get it more consistent? I'm saying not only did they get it wrong, but they're inconsistent. They'll, they'll say born in the first part of the verse and begat in the second part, and they're both talking about of God. Alright, well, what we're saying is then, what we've got to work out is what did the Lord say to Nicodemus? You've got to be born of water and of the Spirit. You might have noticed in the margin you've got to be born or begotten from above. By the way, some of you are probably jumping ahead a little bit and this doesn't come into the story of Nicodemus, but you might be saying, well, if God's our Father, who's our mother? Because if we're going to be born of water and the Spirit, we've got to have a mother, don't we? It, this isn't really part of the story of, of John exactly, or that's going to be on this transparency. Who's our mother? Any suggestions? No suggestions? Well, we'll show it on this chart in just a moment. In fact, to be nasty, I'll probably only just uh, expose as much as we need of it, which is down to there. In the natural sense, there is the begettal. At a certain period during the development of this child, there is what is known as the quickening. I think it's after about 20 weeks, the child actually sort of comes to life in some sense. I believe there's the heartbeats and those sort of things. And then eventually there is the birth. And what we've got here is a chart which suggests that there must be a begettal, a quickening and a birth, both of water and of spirit. Now let me qualify this chart. I've got a number of quotes up here. They are very good quotes that bear on this subject. Don't put those quotes though rigidly 
into any particular box because many of them will overlap the things. It, it, it's not a real uh, a mathematical equation in which, in which we can only put uh, that verse there against begettle of water. And I'm pointing at the first of Peter 1 verse 23 because it's got to be a begettle of spirit. And after all, if we're going to be talking, and let's be, I think we all understand here, what we're saying is that to be born of the water we've got to be baptised and to be born of the spirit, ultimately, we've got to have spirit nature. But you see, to ultimately get spirit nature, and we see here first of Corinthians 15, that the earthy body has to become a heavenly body, the natural body has to become a spirit body, that's going to be the ultimate. But you see, um, at what point does the truth start to work in us? Do we say that the spirit word only begets a new creature in us after we've been begotten of the water, quickened of the water and born of the water, by the way, you're not going to find all those expressions in the Bible. This chart is something that I'm trying to illustrate a point. It's not as though we've got to go one, two, three. Oh, now we can do one, two, three. Wouldn't it be true to say that a person approaching the waters of baptism must already be starting to develop that new mode of thinking? In fact, Peter here talks about that incorruptible seed, he's really talking about the begettle of spirit. So having explained, don't take the chart rigidly, but all of these quotes have a bearing on it. Nicodemus is being told, Nicodemus, two things have got to happen in your life. One, you've got to be born of water. Now, to be born of water, he's got to understand what the righteousness of God's all about. And Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel and he didn't understand about the righteousness of God. And his problem was, as good a Bible student as he was, he was only studying his Bible to be able to go and give lectures and teach other people and it never had any effect on his thinking up to that time. So the Lord looked past his question, are you a teacher come from God? And thought, this man has to be taught that the word of God's got to make a change in him. So the Lord said, except a man, and by the way, the margin against verse 3 I think is better, except a man be begotten from above. That would be a better translation instead of born again. Except a man be begotten from above. Now how can he be begotten from above? In effect, God's word comes down, God's word is spirit and life, and God's word starts to generate in that person a new mode of thinking. And so this chart here, being born of water and of the spirit, shows to us how Nicodemus had to start life in effect all over again and he had, had to allow that word to generate and germinate in him. Now, I don't know how long it took him to learn it, but my word, after the Lord died and his body was taken down from the cross, he understood a lot more about what was going on than the disciples who fled and the disciples who'd been with him all the time, they were nowhere to be found. So the way the Lord treated Nicodemus got through to him. We're not finished with the story yet. But there's a simple chart. I'd, I'd like you to think about that. Uh, we'll perhaps take questions on it later. Uh, but all of those quotes are important. You might say, well, that first of Peter quote would be better over here under this other one. Uh, how do the audio tapes get on looking at a chart like this? Probably not too good. Uh, yeah, well, that's videotapes. You, you, you've got an audio tape, haven't you? Oh, you're videoing. Yeah, that's right, you're audio. You better just wind that back again, otherwise the person listening to your audio tape might know. Okay, right. <laughs> can, can they see that we're sort of smiling at each other too? <laughs> okay, right. Um, what we've got here is a chart uh, which has across the top uh, born of, and one column says water, and the other column says spirit. Uh, down the left-hand side, therefore, we've got three steps, begettle, quickening and birth. And we put the quotes this way. Under water, we're saying begettle of water, 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Begettle of spirit, 1 John 2, verse 29. Quickening. Quickening of water, Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 5. Quickening of spirit, John 6, verse 63 and Romans 8, verse 11. And finally, the bringing to the birth, 
of water, well it's baptism isn't it, Romans 6 verse 11 and the birth of spirit must be that new nature, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 44. And again, for the final time, don't place the quotes rigidly into those boxes but say, look, they've all got something to do with it. Okay, so we're going to come to the birth. Who's our mother? Any suggestions who our mother is? Two quotes, one Old Testament, one new. Jerusalem, which is from above, is the mother of us all, says Galatians chapter 4, verse 26. And Psalm 87, verse 5 and 6, says that in the day of Zion's glory, it shall be said of this man, he was born there. In contrast to those who were born in Egypt, Rahab, it says, Philistia, Tyre, etc. So in the day of Zion's glory, that new Jerusalem, that Jerusalem which is from above, that glorified Zion, is equated to the period when we shall be brought to the birth. So we do have a father and we do have a mother. Therefore of God it should always be said we are begotten of God. He starts the process. Mind you, he also finishes the process. But in the symbology of scripture uh, it's Jerusalem which is from above. Now look, we are, we are building more out of these words in John but I've got a term, I'm not sure that it's a good term, I should think of another one. There are some nice little packages in the Bible where you can put a theme together and you can make it into a chart, even though the chart may have some imperfections, and it does present to us something we can take away, even a little bit beyond what we really needed at that time. And I am not going to develop this except to say, what is the result then of being born of the water? So coming to our chart and looking under the heading of water, the result of being born of water is we become a child of God. The Greek word technon comes from a root which means to beget and it speaks of a natural birth. But being born of the Spirit, we become a son of God. Now the emphasis is not on the English word child and son because all that means is that in a family, if you have a child, it could be male or female. If it happens to be male, you call it a son. But the difference is between the Greek word technon and the Greek word huios. Don't worry, it's got nothing directly to do with John 3. So if you're not getting this at the moment, don't worry. I'm explaining just this completeness of this chart. Technon, a child becomes a technon when it's born into the family through no fault of its own. Say it's the oldest male child in the family. By rights, he has the potential to inherit the title firstborn. Firstborn goes to the one who is born first, unless he proves himself unworthy of it. And the exception almost became the rule. We studied this the other night about Melchizedek, didn't we? We went down the line and we said, Abraham's born first son was Ishmael. The title firstborn went to Isaac. Isaac's born first son was Esau, the title went to Jacob. Jacob's born first son was Reuben, the title went to yeah, Joseph. Joseph's born first son was Manasseh, the title went to Ephraim. God's born first son, although not strictly born, was Adam. Who got the title firstborn? Who was the second Adam? the Lord Jesus Christ, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. Now, the title huios, or the word huios, has relationship to status rather than actual birth. And uh, in, well, if it's not in the John notes, it's in the Romans notes, I know, uh, there's a, this chart and a lot of others about huios and technos, and in the Ephesians notes, I think, as well, that's on the disc. Romans chapter 8 says, the earnest expectation of the creation waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Okay, now that is a, a nice little chart. If we spend any more time on that, we'll lose track of what we're saying here in John chapter 3. I'll leave it though there for a moment. Let's come back and I want to now just once again pick up the drama. Nicodemus has come along. He asked a simple question. He does it in an environment which is not going to cause him any embarrassment. He comes to Jesus by night and he says, 
Are you a teacher come from God? Well, you obviously are, but is there more to it than this? And the Lord says, except you are begotten from above, you will never see the kingdom of God. So he picks up this word gineo. He probably didn't know whether Jesus meant begat or born or whatever, so he concentrates on his mother. But I've got to go back into my mother's womb again. The Lord says, unless you are born of water, which requires a begettal and a birth, and of spirit, you will not see the kingdom of God. In its simplest form, all we're trying to see at the moment is the contrast between the two minds. Let's see how the story progresses. Verse 7. Nicodemus, marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again or begotten from above. The wind... Any other translation about that word wind there in verse 8? It's spirit, isn't it? It's spirit, actually. Yeah, the spirit uh, breathes where he pleases and thou hearest the sound thereof but canst not tell whence it come and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said, "How how can these things be? Now, the Lord never says, okay, you're having difficulty. Let, 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 let me make this simple for you. Almost invariably, the Lord says, you're having trouble? Well, try this. And he makes it harder. So this isn't very good gospel proclamation. Well, the Lord knew exactly what he was doing. He knew all men. He knew what was in man. He didn't trust man. There was a man of the Pharisees called Nicodemus. So, verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand the things I've been saying to you? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and you don't receive our witness. If I've only told you earthly things, Nicodemus, like being born again and that, and you don't understand, how will you get on if I speak to you heavenly things? Okay, here's the test. What are we going to make out of this verse? I'll read it without any attempt to put any emphasis, but I think you'll pick up at least one word that's important here, even though I won't emphasise it. You reckon it's the third word, do you? And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. All right. How are we going to read it? Well, let's make a change. Nicodemus, no man has ascended up to heaven with the exception of he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now, you know what most commentators do with this because they haven't come to grips with the doctrine of God manifestation. They say, ah, this is what the Lord said. He said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, no man has ascended up to heaven, literally, except, of course, myself, Nicodemus, because I came down from heaven. And then John, writing this later, then puts in, even the Son of Man, which is now in heaven. Get the way they interpret it? No man's gone up to heaven, save he... That is the Lord Jesus Christ who came down from heaven and John writing it some years later and says, and of course he has now ascended up and he's now in heaven. I'm going to submit to you that Jesus said all of those words there and then to Nicodemus. Let's try and interpret it in that light. Nicodemus, no man. Now what are we talking about? Are we just talking about a human being of the male gender? Are we just talking about a human being? A physical human being? Or are we talking about people who are still thinking like the flesh? And as long as you think like the flesh, you won't understand spiritual things. You've got to allow that incorruptible seed of the word to generate in you a new form of thinking or you won't understand these heavenly words, Nicodemus. And I've only spoken to you earthly words, Nicodemus, and you can't even understand that. Boy, he was getting a bit of hard time here, wasn't he? So... No man, Nicodemus, has ascended up to heaven except that one that was 
truly begotten from above and came down from heaven, even this one Nicodemus that is standing in front of you at the moment, and while he's standing in front of you at the moment, he's in heaven. Why did we start off with Nathaniel? Long time ago, wasn't it? What did Nathaniel see? He saw a ladder. No, he saw something greater than a ladder. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ with angels of God ascending and descending. The Lord Jesus Christ was literally on the earth. But where was his mind? His mind was at one with the Father. That's why John can say, I and my Father are one. The Lord's feet were on the earth, but by a figure, his head was in heaven. He had been begotten from above. He was able to ascend to spiritual thinking. And Nicodemus, that's what you've got to try and do. You've got to be begotten of the Spirit so that you can understand the things of the Spirit. Now, the whole of the Gospel of John will consist of narratives and discussions in which the Lord is trying to take people up there. And this afternoon, he's trying to do that to us. It's not easy the first time round. But as we read it and read it and read it and read it, it becomes much easier. Now, I submit to you, and by the way, I'm not the only person that interprets it this way. Brother John Carter, in his book, The Gospel of John, uh, gives you both options, actually. <clears throat> and in the best of British diplomacy, leaves you to, uh, to uh, decide which one you will take. Although I think he does come down more heavily on the side of what I've suggested. Can we read it again and see if this is what we think it means? Verse 13, Nicodemus, no one that thinks like man will be able to ascend up to understand heavenly things. And that's the problem you've got, Nicodemus. There's only one man that's ever been able to do this perfectly and he was the one that came down from heaven. How did Jesus come down from heaven? He was literally begotten by the Spirit. And we'll come across that in John 6 in our session tonight. So the only one that's done that, Nicodemus, is me. And whilst I'm here on earth, I and my Father are one. He says in another place, my mind is in heaven with God. Can you understand why people would come to that verse and say, here's a Bible difficulty. And so some translators will put the last part in brackets to say, well, John added that in later. Got any translations that actually do that? I wouldn't be surprised if some of them actually uh, do. Do they put that little bit in brackets at the end at all? How are we going? We've not got our living Bibles and NIVs and uh, others with us tonight? No. We've, you didn't, I hope you didn't get offended by the speaker deprecating some of these <laughs> other translations. Uh, pause. Would you like to challenge it or ask it or do you want to just finally finish, see how the Lord does finish with Nicodemus and then come back to it. Well, if you reckon the Lord was being rather unkind to him, well, you haven't seen anything yet. <clears throat> As Moses, verse 14, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. He would have believed that salvation was of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews? You say, but it does say that somewhere in the Bible. Where does it say that in the Bible? It says it in the next chapter of John. And here comes our summary because John chapter 4 is going to be very quickly summarised. Let me use words which may be slightly extreme but it makes the point. Nicodemus was an intelligent narrow-minded is my interpretation, Jew, who had to have his thinking broadened to understand that, verse 15, whosoever believeth can have eternal life. Not just Jews. In John chapter 4, he meets a broad-minded Gentile woman. Why do I say she's broad-minded? Well, she'd had five husbands and the man she was living with wasn't her husband. So that's not a good start. She didn't seem to be particularly intelligent. And she wanted to know, was the right place to worship in Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem? Now, if he had said to her, look, it doesn't matter, whosoever believeth can be saved, she'd gone away and said, thank you. What does he say to her? He says, salvation is of the Jews. 
And she had to learn that true worship is worship in spirit and in truth. Now I know I'm anticipating that you know a little bit about John chapter 4. See how John 3 and John 4, I love this word because it took me a long time to learn what it meant when I heard someone say it. John 3 and John 4 are put in juxtaposition which I think means they're put alongside of each other all both teaching the same thing but in contrast. Nicodemus, an intelligent, narrow-minded, Jewish, intelligent, did I say that before, man had to learn that if you're going to be born of the Spirit, doesn't matter who you are, whosoever believeth can be saved. A broad-minded, Gentile, Samaritan woman wanting to know, do you worship in Mount Gerizim or down in Jerusalem, had to be taught salvation is of the Jews and furthermore God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So both Nicodemus at one end of the spectrum and the Gentile woman, they're virtually opposite ends of the spectrum, both had to learn that that little incorruptible seed must generate a new form of thinking and that can work in anybody. You can come from what the Jews would see as the lowest level of society a Samaritan woman with five husbands and now not her husband, or it could be the teacher of Israel. Two ends of the spectrum, but both had to learn that you've got to learn to worship in spirit. Now, I think we're just going to have time really to finish off the way in which the Lord dealt with Nicodemus, but the end result we know was good. So, Nicodemus had to have his thinking broadened. Let's pick it up from... Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him, whosoever believeth in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now Nicodemus, this is the condemnation. This is the condemnation, Nicodemus. Light is come to the world and men, aha, we're back to our word again, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He that came to Jesus by night? You know, we're in the dark, Nicodemus. Are you getting the point, Nicodemus? Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest that they are wrought in God. And that's the end of the story. My word, Nicodemus was sent away with a hammering, wasn't he? He had to go away and try and work out all this about being begotten of the Spirit. The Lord roundly condemned him for coming to him by night and didn't just say, well, it's because you're scared, Nicodemus. It says, Nicodemus, because your deeds are evil. Oh, that was solid, wasn't it? But I repeat, who was the first one to come and ask for the body of Jesus? Nicodemus, together with Joseph of Arimathea. So, here was a man that had to learn that you've got to be born of water and of the Spirit. Just let's flick over to John chapter 4 to pick up some of the words that I paraphrased earlier because I'm not assuming that everyone is necessarily familiar with the, with the story of the woman of Samaria. And I did make a little bit underestimate with my time. I think I've got, yes, I've got six minutes to go. And what I'll actually do is uh, just put up a map now, this is where David's audio system really does have trouble, but it's a very simple map. It's a map of Israel, and what I'm doing is I'm pointing at the moment uh, to a spot a few miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, it's actually called Shechem, and on this map it shows what I want, two mountains, two hills, Gerizim and Ebel. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebel were the two mountains where Joshua took the tribes of Israel after they'd come across the Jordan, and six of the tribes were on Mount Gerizim, and six on Mount Ebal, and it's not a very big valley between them. And the ones on uh, Mount Ebal pronounce the curses of the law, and the ones on Mount Gerizim pronounce the blessings of the law. 
Now the Samaritans, and by the way, this woman in John chapter 4 is an interesting woman because uh, when she came to Jesus and uh, he was talking about the water that could be drawn out and uh, she said, how do you come to be speaking to me? And he said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask some water from me. Gee, that's strange. He's asked me for some water. Now he's telling me, if you knew who I am, you'd be asking the water back from me. That doesn't sort of make sense, you know. And he said, well, the water I can give you can last forever. Well, she said, well, give us that water. That saves me coming and collecting it every day. So he said, well, we'll go and get your husband. Well, she said, I haven't got a husband. He said, I know you haven't got a husband. You've had five husbands. And the one that you're living with now isn't your husband. Now, she was amazed at that. But she was a Samaritan, uh, and in fact, uh, it's rather interesting. I won't go back to the passage, but um, in Second of Kings 17 and verse 24, the Samaritans were a group of people that the Assyrians, you know when the Assyrians took the ten tribes up here, uh, well, they scattered them, the land had been depopulated. So even the Assyrians... I say even the Assyrians recognised that you can't leave a land depopulated. So they sent people over here to live and they came from five different places. You'll find that in that record in Kings. And they came from a place where they worshipped five different gods. When they got here, they had trouble. Lions started eating them. And they said, well, we must have, un- we must have offended the god of the land. So they sent down to, uh, uh, to one of the priests that Jeroboam had set up, nice corrupt priest, And he came up and taught them the hope of Israel according to his corrupt version. So they said, oh, we better worship him. So this woman was a type of the nation that she'd come from. They had come from being married to five husbands and the one they now had, which was Yahweh, they weren't really married to him at all. Just an interesting little point that's in the John notes and you can pick them up if you later. So this is what the Lord's looking at. He's looking at a woman here who represents a mongrel race. It's a crossbred. They don't know what they're on about. So she thinks, well, let's get to the point. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Now, the worship, the mountain they worshipped in was Mount Gerizim, up here. Tell us, our fathers worshipped in Mount Gerizim, um, and you, verse 20, you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we've got to worship. Now, if Nicodemus had asked this question, uh, the Lord would have said, look, it doesn't matter where you worship, as long as you uh, worship in spirit and in truth. What does he say to her? He says, um, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye Samaritans don't know what you worship. We Jews, now he's identifying himself as a Jew, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So the broad-minded woman had to have her thinking narrowed and what does he then say? But, verse 23, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit doesn't say a spirit, God is spirit. Everything about God is totally, singly spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, that's the end of our second session and what we've done is we've taken two illustrations of the way in which John in his Gospel records conversations between the mind of the spirit in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ in every instance and people representing all classes of society from the learned Jew to the Samaritan woman and later on to the disciples and others who think according to the flesh and he challenges them with words which make them rethink their situation. He doesn't do it in gradual steps. He uses absolute language. So we either worship according to the spirit or according to the flesh. Most of us say, but look, I've got a little bit of spirit but boy the flesh is strong no fundamentally that spirit word has started to generate you know if the spirit word hasn't started to generate we don't know we're doing things wrong I've often said that when you go to Romans chapter 7 the apostle Paul says oh wretched man that I am you know who's going to save me from this body of death 
So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God and with the flesh, the law of sin. The more you study the Bible, the worse you see yourself to be. You may think you're going backwards, but you're actually going forwards because you're seeing all the wrong things. So if you want to feel good about yourself, stop reading your Bible. <laughs> it's easy, isn't it? You do, that, that's it. Because then there's nothing there that's going to prick your conscience. So Nicodemus and the woman of Samaria both had to learn that they'd got need to be begotten from above by that incorruptible seed and that's what the gospel record of John is all about because when John looks at Jesus he sees God the thinking of God, the mind of God hence in John's gospel in John's gospel the Lord can say I and my father are one and we're going to pick that up in our study tomorrow morning